Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we analyse the 2019 federal election result, is Australian democracy for sale and how much does it cost, and the upcoming parliament, what can we expect to see over the next three years? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Milliner to the Stars. The election resulted in yet another coalition victory, their third in a row, and the result went against the flow of a generally anticipated Labor victory. The coalition picked up one additional seat to land on 77 seats, while the Labor Party lost one seat to land on 68, the rest of the seats going to the minor parties and the independents. There was a 1.2% swing towards the government, and the final result was almost the reverse of most people's expectations. It was one of the most surprising election victories in Australian history, more surprising than Labor's victory in 1993, and ruining the reputation of all the major polling companies along the way. During the last term, there had been leadership changes in both the Liberal and National parties, and compared to the Labor Party, the Liberals were divided and unstable for the best part of three years, and had little to show in their policy agenda for the future. There was a stench of corruption that followed the coalition everywhere, yet somehow the electorate wanted more of the same for the next three years. They say that there's no such thing as an unwinnable election, and so it proved to be for the coalition. What went right for the coalition, and where did it all go wrong for Labor? I think we can look at fear as a, as a big motivator. I think we can look at, on a superficial level, is that people, I think, didn't want to change the Prime Minister just because we'd had all those changes. You know, since 2007, we've had Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. I think there was a sense that we'd had too much change of Prime Minister anyway. I think in some electorates, jobs was a big issue and that Labor didn't really address the jobs issue in any real or substantive way. They got stuck in detailing franking credits and... Most people don't understand franking credits. They got stuck in defending Bill Shorten as a good bloke and someone who is likable. I'm not denying any of that. But Bill Shorten was not seen as a very likable figure or a very popular figure. I think the Liberal Party was able to target electorates which were swinging but had a Liberal bias. I believe Scott Morrison visited Tasmania eight times. They spent a lot of time in Queensland. And there were factors there that didn't come out in the mainstream press. The Adani mine was seen to be the saviour for jobs in north and central Queensland. There was a lot of opposition to the mine, but there was no plan on what to do if it didn't go ahead. There was some vague talk of renewables and retraining, but no substantive plan. Now, I know a lot of commentators are saying that the big picture detailed policy campaign is through. I don't think it is, but I don't think it was, and this is all in retrospect too, I don't think it was run as well as uh, perhaps it should have been. Elections are never based just on the one issue. There's always going to be a multitude of issues that affect the, the final outcome. But here at New Politics, we prefer to be accountable as much as possible. And let's just check what our predictions were before the election. 
My feeling is that Labor should win this and they should be quite confident about maybe picking up around 15 seats. Now, no one wants to have egg on their face, as we found in 1999, 2001, 2004, 2015. I mentioned all of those state examples where surprise victories just came out of nowhere, and that's what a surprise is. It comes out of nowhere. But there's just very little to suggest that there's something that might pop out of the box at the last minute and create some surprises. I actually think that we might be looking at another term, Liberal National, to be quite honest. And I think it's going to happen through preferences. I think Labor is going to win the primary vote. But I think in those marginal seats where people will vote for independence, the preference flows will go to LNP. I predicted a landslide victory to the Labor Party. But you, David, you predicted a minority government for the Liberal National Party. You predicted that they would be returned and you got it 100% correct. I do get it right occasionally. (laughs) It wasn't based on the primary evidence, if that makes sense. All evidence pointed to a a Labor victory of 6 to 8%. Labor presented well. The Liberal Party was a mess. Yet, this is the case in New South Wales as well. And in New South Wales, the Berejiklian government slipped through. I've said before on this podcast, since 2010, all the rules have changed. And that's in large part thanks to the uh, ascension of Tony Abbott as uh, leader of the opposition and then prime minister. In terms of parties started behaving differently and unpredictably. And once I saw that the Berejiklian government could be returned, even after travelling throughout the state, finding nobody who really had much time for them, finding people, and I'm talking from a broad range of people who couldn't really see the point of voting them back in, voted them back in. And I thought this is the same. Under pre-2010, there was no way that the Liberal Party could have won and it should have been a decisive electoral defeat with a restructure. Before the election, we can make predictions. Afterwards, we look at things in retrospect and in hindsight. And in hindsight, it seems like the lack of a decision on Adani mine by the Labor Party, that seemed to be picking up the the worst of both worlds for the Labor Party, where because they were indecisive about that, there were the issues about jobs in Queensland and in West Australia and to a lesser extent in northern Tasmania. Now, even though there's not many jobs that will be created by the Adani mine, it seems like ultimately there'll be around 100 ongoing positions if the Adani mine does go ahead, and I doubt very much that it will go ahead. The lack of a decision on Adani cost the Labor Party seats in Queensland, and it didn't allow them to pick up the seats that they were expecting to pick up in Melbourne. So in hindsight, and we're all wonderful in hindsight, of course, the best decision would have been to give a sense that it was not going to approve the Adani mine. It would have lost seats in Queensland, but those seats were going to be lost anyway. They would have picked up more seats in Melbourne. I'm wondering if Labor expected to win so much they didn't think about the small tactics, which the Liberal Party did. Liberal Party targeted the seats. Wayne Swan, I think, pointed out that it was lost 120,000 votes over eight seats, which isn't very much per seat. It's only, you know, a couple thousand votes. The balance of independence is interesting. There are three right-leaning independents and three left-leaning independents, and that includes Adam Bant of the Greens. 
it really is a one-seat majority. There are some people saying, oh, they've got the three, so that gives them, but they're actually balanced by the other three. And, of course, independents are independents, and votes can go anywhere depending on their own electorate's desires. Bob Catter will vote against the party that annoys him the most on that day, usually the Liberals, but not always. Adam Bant in the Greens will support Liberal legislation. This isn't on its face a bad thing at all. They're not the Labor Party. They're not the opposition. A two-seat majority is not very much over the cycle of the electoral term. All you need is a death or a resignation from one of the sitting MPs in a marginal seat. There's always a chance that those seats can be lost. So we could go into minority government again during this term of office. But one or two seats as a majority, that's still wafer thin. So there's not much room for the coalition to move there. Yeah, he's one heart attack away from an election. Some interesting seat issues that may become problematic. The seat of Chisholm seems to have misled its voters with uh, Liberal Party posters suggesting in Mandarin that the only way for your vote to be valid is to put Liberal Party first. I don't know that the Chinese community couldn't see through that. But then again, in a second language and new-ish political system. It may have swung enough votes to push the candidate through. It'd be interesting to see what is found. I think that will go to the courts rather than be an AEC issue. There's questions over the eligibility of some of Clive Palmer's candidates under Section 44. The general consensus is that they didn't win anyway, so it doesn't matter. But there's an argument to say that their preferences swung. And in some seats, you take their preferences out and the other side wins. Whether they will chase that or not, I I doubt they will, but it's certainly something that should be looked at as well. Bill Shorten was the leader of the Labor Party during the election campaign. He's resigned now, and during his resignation speech, he said that there were vested interests that were against the Labor Party. News Limited, Sky News, the real estate industry, the banks. Yes, there were quite a few vested interests against him. And as soon as he made that claim, all of those vested interests started attacking him. News Limited, all the Murdoch press, Sky News, they started attacking him left, right and centre. Publications such as the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age started attacking him. He resigned of his own will. And of course, if you've been the opposition leader for six years and you've lost two elections, well, that's the the rightful thing to do. It's similar to what Arthur Caldwell did many years ago. It makes electoral sense that if you've lost two elections as the opposition leader, you stand down. Kim Beasley did that in 2001. It's time to give someone else a go. There was absolutely no pressure for him to resign, but he did. And as soon as that happened, the media said he's hankering for the top position. He'll come back soon. He'll always be after that position. Don't worry. Whoever becomes the new Labor leader, they'll be under pressure from Bill Shorten because he'll always be wanting to snatch the position back again. I think it's fair to say Tony Abbott held that position for himself, that you know he could come back. And he had a group of supporters who were working towards that. He could say that he didn't really get a fair go. He only had two years in the top job and that wasn't enough to establish himself. That's at least three years away if he can get pre-selection in another seat. I think even Tony realises that the game is over. Michael Rowlands, I think, got in trouble for showing a picture of Bill Shorten taking the garbage out. And he did that. He claimed, and I believe him, that to show, you know, one day he's potential prime minister and within a hair's breadth of it, the next day, 
he's just another person in the street. That's the brutality of politics. And to be fair to Bill Shorten, many worse people than him have become prime minister and many better people than him have never made it past leader of the opposition. Well, it does seem that if you do resign as leader, there's very little chance that you'll come back as a leader or there's very little chance that you cause trouble in the background. If you are challenged and defeated, well, that seems to be where the problems lie. Kevin Rudd was challenged and defeated. He came back. He undermined the Labor Party for almost two terms. Tony Abbott, he was defeated as well. He undermined Malcolm Turnbull for most of his prime ministership as well. Now, he's out, actually out of the parliament now. It seems like if you do resign, now there has to be one caveat there where Kim Beasley, he did actually resign in 2001, but he came back as leader after Simon Crean resigned in 2002. So there are precedents for that to happen, but there wasn't any undermining or sniping. Simon Crean was not performing very well, so he actually resigned at that time. There wasn't a challenge. It was a smooth leadership transition. There's always a possibility that Bill Shorten can come back, but why would he? He actually did receive a lot of support and unity and stability during the six years that he was leader. Now, you can never underestimate the right wing of the Labor Party, as far as their pursuit of being able to cause trouble for someone who is from from the left wing, which is where Anthony Albanese comes from. So we can never underestimate their maniacal behaviour sometimes. On the evidence so far, it's very unlikely that Bill Shorten will come back as the leader. It was right to keep him in the ministry if, if he wanted it, and it seems he did on the NDIS in the shadow ministry. Labor has to honour its ex-leaders and so does the Liberal Party and and I think it's right for Bill to stay on. I don't think it's highly offensive if you get all the way you miss out in the way you did and if he'd said look I'm going to stay on the backbench and give advice in the in the way that Wayne Swan did for example or even go for two years make a quiet transition and, and quietly resign I don't think many people would have found that terribly offensive and it's the same on the other side too. When Malcolm Turnbull resigned, there was some grumbling from some segments of the Liberal Party, but I think most people from all sides of politics thought, no, that's fair enough. Why would you stay on after how you've been treated? So I think it, it is good of Bill Shorten to stay on. Whether he does it as a transitionary to work towards somebody else or whether he will genuinely go on fighting every day for the causes he believes in from that position remains to be seen. Either way, it really doesn't matter. Many political commentators have been arguing that we're not going to see a big target strategy for a long, long time. And it's similar to what happened back in 1993 where the coalition had the, the massive fight back project. Now that really was a big target. This time around I don't think that the Labor Party had had a big target but they had enough targets for the coalition to take aim, namely the franking credits proposal which was totally misread and misunderstood by the electorate and their negative gearing policy which was attacked by the real estate industry and simplified to a very sharp political message by Josh Frydenberg. There weren't too many big targets but the targets were big enough for their opponents to take aim. What will we see at the next election? Will we see a, more of a smaller strategy from both the Labor Party and the Coalition, which pretty much didn't have any agenda at all, and it was quite successful for them? Now, this is the imbalance, I guess, in, in the system. Labor has to be inspiring. 
you can't run on a small target. And in fact, that was another factor that I thought that the Liberals would win, that you, you need, you know, it's time or Kevin 07. You need those simple, pithy, hopeful, big slogans that resonate. Sometimes they fail. When the Liberal Party tries them, they fail. Uh, incentivation in 19, was it 1987 with John Howard, awful. Kevin 07, though, which you might see as being puerile, you might see as being simplistic, it succeeded. Now it was backed up by a complex and comprehensive policy, but you've got to get the hook in. To be talking about how many shares you need to be able to get $26,000 worth of franking credits and that franking credits are paid to people who who have invested in certain companies who pay their dividends back through credits that have already had tax paid on them but count as separate income yet is tax-free. Well, you've already lost the audience by that time. I can hear people turning the podcast off as I was saying that. <laughs> you've lost the audience and it muddies your central message. Bill Shorten had run a good campaign and it had been a good campaign but it lacked the snap and pop. The Liberal Party doesn't need to do that. They're the traditionally the party of the steady hand, the forgotten people. Now, whether that's right or wrong is a whole other, in terms of whether that is how it should be, is a whole other debate for another time and another place. But that is how it is. Well, the Labor Party does need to set up a new strategy for the next election. We did have Kevin 07 back in 2007, of course. We didn't have anything for 2019, but let's see if the next election ends up being Catch-22. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, is Australian democracy for sale and how much does it cost? The billionaire and owner of Mineralogy, Clive Palmer, spent almost $80 million on advertising for the United Australia Party during the election campaign. But he was almost the stalking horse venture for the coalition, with a pickup of 450,000 primary votes across Australia, and 70% of those preferences were directed back to the coalition. You could barely look at a screen, watch a television, listen to a radio, or read a newspaper without coming across a United Australia Party advertisement campaigning against the Labor Party. It was brazen, it was audacious, and it worked. There are currently no laws to stop anyone at all advertising during political campaigns and elections as long as it's authorised and the amounts of spending and donations are declared, albeit it ends up being at least eight months after the election. Australian politics and election outcomes are being highly influenced more and more by the asset-rich class and business tycoons. I think this is becoming a bit of a problem for Australian politics. It has been for a while. Kevin Rudd retreated on his climate change policy after a massive advertising campaign by the mining industries. Now, mining seems like it's a big employee. You drive through the Hunter Valley or you drive through some of the other, and you see these huge mines with trucks and everywhere. They only employ between 1% and 2% of the workforce, and that's dropping. Automated mining is becoming much more prevalent. And in Australia, some of the mines 
are starting to dry up and are becoming economically unviable. Most of the attention during the election campaign, it's not just during the election campaign, it's probably been over the past two or three years, most of the focus has been on the Adani coal mine. What is largely unknown is that Clive Palmer, through his company, Mineralogy, they've got a development application on another mine, which is almost twice as big as the Adani mine. It's virtually right next door to Adani. It's called the Alpha North Mining Development Plan. Double the size of the Carmichael mine, which will be managed by Adani, and it will produce 33% more coal if it's approved. Clive Palmer, his intention wasn't anything to do with winning seats or getting his senators up in parliament. It was all about making sure that Labor didn't get in. So, of course, once you spend $80 million on this process to make sure that your opponents are not getting in, he'd be looking for some sort of trade-off from that. And I expect that at some point over the next six months, it's not so much Adani that's going to be attracting all the attention, but it's Alpha North will end up getting the approval. I think that's right. I think Adani doesn't have a case. Alpha North probably doesn't have a case either. And like most scams, all the information's in there to show you that it's a scam. Not once did he mention the Liberal Party in a terribly negative light. Everything was the Labor government approved this and the Labor government and Labor. Uh, you could probably do a Barnaby Joyce mashup with Labor, 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 Labor. I think it probably did sting him that he didn't win a seat. I think he was hoping to get a seat at least in the Senate. And the Senate has become very interesting and maybe even one lower house seat. Now, he didn't even come close, which suggests money doesn't work in the way that we would think it was, that you pour these, these big dollars into the campaigns. Across Australia, the United Australia Party achieved around 3.4% of the primary vote. That's across Australia-wide. I did check most of their seats, and they did actually run candidates in all 151 seats around Australia. The level of primary vote fluctuated between somewhere like 2.8% up to around 4.5% in every single seat. So I'd say that the $70, $80 million that was spent on advertising did have that effect of picking up that vote. And as I mentioned before, 70% of their primary vote preferences went back to the coalition. It was never his intention to pick up any lower house seats or senators. It was more about making sure that Labor didn't get in, getting a favourable outcome through the coalition and getting his Alpha North mining approval. It doesn't take much for policies to change. If a politician smells a whiff that his or her job is on the line... We're a long way from any of this happening, but they will dump Clive like a hot potato. And particularly if the questionable dealings he's had, which has put him into conflict with the tax office, he still owes, I believe, seven or eight million dollars to his employees. On the other side, there are companies that apparently owe him a lot of money that haven't paid. And there are some interesting questions of where did he get his money from, because currently I think mineralogy is very close to being insolvent. But there are close ties amongst the mining industry, the Liberal Party, the National Party, big farmers, big banks and finance committees. The Mining Council is a very conservative organisation. Its board of directors contains some very right-wing individuals. Back in 2009, the mining industry spent $122 million dollars on a highly aggressive campaign against Labor's mining tax and carbon tax proposals and kick-started the moves by the Labor Party to depose Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister. 
Now, there wasn't even an election campaign going on at that time, and they did their best to make sure the mining and carbon taxes became a big political issue. The mining tax and the carbon tax, both of those were introduced by the Labor Party, but the campaign that was implemented by the Mining Council was so great that they helped toss out the Labor government, and by 2013, both the mining and carbon taxes were gone. Of course, in a democratic country, everyone's got the right to spend money on political campaigning in whichever way they want, but $122 million to campaign on one issue, that's quite a lot of money. So big business has a massive advantage over the other side of politics, and it's difficult to launch counter-arguments if your side doesn't have the same access to those types of funding. It's a vexed question, and... All the other highly geared money people in the country, the Reinhardts, the Lowys, the Trigobovs, the Stokes, they'd be looking at how the United Australia Party performed in this election and they'd be taking notes on how to influence elections in the future with the support of the Liberal Party. I think that's right. And of course with mining too, what's not really understood is that it belongs to the Commonwealth, the, the products of mining. They say they own it, they don't. The people own it. They get a license to mine it. And from there, the federal government has the right and I would say the obligation and the duty to charge a good amount and a fair amount for the privilege of being able to do that. Now they say, oh, we'll pack up and leave. Okay, so that's 1% or 2% of the work industry that we need to retrain. Someone else will come in and take it at less profits anyway. The fear, I was what I was saying before, of politicians that, oh, if they leave, what will happen? Well, you can manage that. But, of course, when you have these big campaigns, that type of message doesn't cut through. People will tell you that the miners work very hard and do a lot. Individual miners in the mines work extremely hard. Don't get me wrong. But the owners of the mining companies don't work terribly hard for the amount of money they get. The amounts of money being spent by vested interests is one issue in Australian politics. There's no limits on how much money can be spent on elections by individuals or corporations, and that's one area that will need to be looked at in the future. The Australian Electoral Commission, they're the ones responsible for the management of elections in Australia. They've got their hands full and they're limited by the amount of resources that are available to them. During this election campaign, there were a few incidents where electoral laws were breached, around 87 or so electoral breaches. And these were things such as unauthorised advertisements, leaflets that contained false messaging, signage in foreign languages that also held incorrect information that was usually favourable to the Liberal Party, illegal text messaging which contained further false information. Some of it was litigious. The only action available to the Electoral Commission is a cease and desist order. That's if they can find out who's responsible for the messaging, but by that time it's usually too late. By the time false or unauthorised material is taken down, especially if it's been up for several weeks, it's just far too late. The messages are already out there in the public domain. You can't unsay or undo a message that's already been disseminated, and especially if it's already been distributed through online media. To me, the solution is publicly funded elections. And we're very close to that, actually. Parties that get over 4% of the primary vote not only get their deposit back, but get, I think it's $2.58 per vote, which is designed to help them fund the next party. And I think this is a tremendous thing. I think it's a terrific thing. 
It means that small parties, even those I vehemently disagree with, get a say if they're deemed worthy to have a say. Yes, it still stacks towards Liberal, National and Labor, but it means that the money is coming in neutrally. There's no strings attached, except that you have to spend it on really the party and administering the party and getting ready for the next election. If we were to ban all private donations or cap it at maybe $5,000 per seat, so you can have your morning teas or your core flutes printed or stuff that perhaps, particularly for the smaller parties, electoral allowance won't cover, it will stop that influence of, well, I've paid your party $250,000 and this is what I want done. One other factor that was apparent during the election campaign, now you, you can spend X amount of money on on television advertising or newspaper advertising, but when you've got a budget of $80 million to spend, which is what Clive Palmer did, well, that also means that you've got access to social media, and social media has become quite a big factor over the, not only in this federal election, but also the previous New South Wales election. And elections are never won over just the one issue, you know, whether it's the economy, lies about death taxes, an supposedly unpopular leader like Bill Shorten, or even Clive Palmer's advertising but one one key factor as i mentioned was the role of social media and in particular facebook and instagram and the the coalition engaged they actually engaged a new zealand agency called topham guerin now i haven't come across these people before but they're an agency that's got links to australia's national party and their job was to create and distribute social media material and advertising such as videos, animation, and graphics. And you probably saw the most infamous graphic, the bill that Australia can't afford. And that was absolutely everywhere online. I did have a look at the statistics and social media engagement for the coalition was 30% higher than the Labor Party. And it was very quick and responsive. So it's, it's clear to me that the Liberal Party also won the online info wars. The bill Australia can't afford was one of those cut through me- messages that worked extremely well. Was it fair? No. <laughs> Was it accurate? Probably not, but it worked and it put enough doubt in just enough people's minds that it helped swing the election. And that online factor can't be underestimated. It's how Kevin Rudd did it in 2007. Now we're 12 years down the track from there and the mainstream media is slowly dying off. News Corp have just announced 50 journalists are to be retrenched. They allegedly won the election. I wouldn't have thought it was a great sign of victory to sack 50 of your key staff. Fairfax and Channel 9 have merged in what I say is a last-ditch attempt to try and stay alive. From now on, most of the political activity is going to be via online media newspapers. There's been a dying industry for some time. It's a question of how long the newspapers will be around for and print media will be around for. Don't get me wrong, they'll always be out there on some level, but it's just that I'd expect the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, to go purely online, possibly produce a a a once-a-week roundup of the news. The Australian will probably disappear as well once Rupert Murdoch goes. So most of the engagement with the electorate is more than likely going to be online. And and we talked about the advertisement, the bill Australia can't afford. That was a brilliant piece of propaganda and it worked incredibly well. But there wasn't anything produced by the Labor Party to counteract that. And this is another retrospective failure, I guess, of the Labor They had so much material. And this will get us another review of, oh, this is all pro-Labor rubbish. It's all, you know, 
but it's really not a competent government. Howard was a competent government, whether you liked it or not, a whole other thing. Fraser was a competent government, whether you liked it or not, again, a whole other thing. But since 2013, we haven't had terribly competent governments. The party's been split. They can't agree with each other. Some of that was that the media, the mainstream media, did tend towards promoting the liberal side a bit more. If you look at through who the papers were predicting to win, they may present that as a counter-argument. But I think, too, Labor got tied up in its own self-belief. And I get the sense that they didn't feel they needed to because these divisions, etc., and these incompetencies and these irregularities were self-evident. Now, things like George Christensen, apparently his electors felt that he was getting a hard time from Sydney and Brisbane. How dare these outsiders come in and tell us? Which is why he was able to get away with not spending very much time in his electorate and you know, spending his time apparently on the iPad in Manila, which doesn't seem fair to me. It doesn't seem right to me. I wouldn't be happy if my local member spent all that time in New Zealand, for example, just to pick a more neutral place. I'd be incredibly annoyed, but that's just me. I prefer to have my local MP very local. Yeah, exactly. But they didn't capitalise really on this stuff. And this stuff, the mainstream media will pick up. You know, so-called Watergate was really just starting to take off when the election took on. So it was a known thing. It, they can't say that the media suppressed this. They maybe could have run with it further, but there was an election campaign going on. Let's, you know, be really fair to them. But Labor didn't really jump on it as hard as they could have. And again, speaking retrospectively, it's easy to say that in hindsight. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at what we can expect in politics over the next year. Counting is over, most of the seats have been declared, the election writs will soon be returned, and that's when the next parliament will commence. Prior to this election, we predicted a massive realignment of conservative politics, but this didn't turn out to be the case. All of the coalition ministers that emptied out their offices and shredded all their documents will have to fill up their bookcases again and work out what their agenda is for the next three years. Labor has a new leadership team, led by a new leader, Anthony Albanese, and they've already embarked on listening tours to Queensland, Western Australia and Tasmania to talk to the electorate and find out where they went wrong. The media has already upped the ante and relentlessly attacked Labor and its new team and already talked up the prospects of Bill Shorten creating havoc by wanting to return to the leadership, even though he voluntarily resigned from his leadership just a few days ago. If this is the way the media is going to behave in the future, it's going to be a very long three years before the next election. Anthony Albanese has started the press management. I've seen a lot of good press on Anthony. I'm not sure that that's where he, he should be going. I think he could probably know because they're going to turn on him. He gets all good press at the moment. And I think they're going a bit easy on him too because, one, he's new to the job. Even though they've started attacking him, it's going to ramp up. I think he's well-liked by a lot of the Canberra journalists in a way that I suspect 
Bill Shorten wasn't. Media management is a key factor within politics and because Bill Shorten, the previous Labor leader, he was getting such a bad rap from most of the mainstream media, he decided that what his strategy would be was to have a number of town hall meetings all across Australia. Now, during the term of the last election cycle, he ended up doing 80 town halls altogether. And the idea was you'd circumvent the media and go directly to the people. The people that attended those town hall meetings would then talk to other people about how great Bill Shorten was. The only problem with that is that 80 town hall meetings, even if you're getting 200 people turning up, that's around 16,000 people. There's 12 million people voting in elections across Australia, and that's, that's not reaching enough people. So... I'm not sure if Anthony Albanese will be continuing with the town hall meetings. Of course he'll do some, but I'm not sure if he'll be doing 80 over the next three years. Getting the media on board is a good thing, but there needs to be that process of attaching to that new frontier of electioneering, which is social media. Maybe that's the area that they need to concentrate more fully over the next three years. Things that don't work. Debates. I can't remember a debate, for example, a televised debate between the two leaders swinging an election. Bill Shorten won the three debates he had with Scott Morrison. Gladys Berejiklian lost the three debates she had with Michael Daly. Yet it didn't have an appreciable effect on the election. The town hall, I think, was probably a good idea to try and undermine the idea that Bill wasn't a terribly popular bloke. He could go in and meet people, and most people came out of the town hall impressed. But you're right, 16,000 people, even if they tell four people, 180,000 votes they lost by. So they still needed at least another 180,000 votes on top of that. I think it was a good idea. The ones that the Liberal Party ran were very managed with invited people, you know, whereas Bill Shorten took on people who disagreed with him. We only had an election just a couple of weeks ago, but there still doesn't seem to be very much scrutiny on the government. And we did talk about their multitudes of corruption, ministers disgraced, money wastage, water mismanagement and rorting. Stuart Robert, he was a disgraced former minister. He had to resign from the ministry a few years ago. He also rorted his internet usage. He had to pay back $37,000 to the taxpayer for overuse of the internet, his home account. He's now the Minister of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Susan Lay, she she didn't have to resign, but she was disgraced after rorting her travel allowance as well, and she went resigned on her own accord, and, and she sat on the backbench for a while. She's now the Minister for Environment. So it's hard to see what you need to do to be banned from the ministry within the coalition. So we've got a host of ministers that are not very competent, but here they are being promoted. We can go through and through and through, Arthur Sinodinus, rather than being disgraced out of office, is set to take over from Joe Hockey. Now, let's be fair, Arthur is a much more substantial figure than Joe Hockey. If he wasn't so tainted by some of the decisions he'd made, you'd think that's a not a bad choice for American ambassador. Stuart Robert, as you said, Angus Taylor, how he wasn't deselected, I still don't quite know. Michaelia Cash, who ignored subpoenas from the federal police. Events that might have happened two, three or four years ago, they tend to be forgotten about by the electorate and especially forgotten about by the media. And unless they're reminded about these issues by their opponents, these matters disappear into the ether. 
Arthur Sinodinus, he has been a good performer for the Liberal Party over the years. He was caught up in that scandal, the Sydney Water Corporation scandal a few years ago, but during the corruption inquiry that followed, he couldn't remember a thing. His memory has miraculously returned, though. It's hard to know what will happen with Angus Taylor. Politics is a moving caravan, and the media usually loses interest and looks for the next area of excitement. But by the time the next election arises, unless the opposition sees a political opportunity it can exploit, these matters of corruption and the other misbehaviours will be forgotten about. And yet not. I mean, I think the water is a long way from being forgotten. Tamworth is running out of water. Dubbo is running out of water. Walgett has run out of water. These are substantial towns. All the three of them voted back in the party that is at least nominally responsible. Don't think Angus Taylor is out of the woods just yet. I don't know that people forget, except there's always events. And we have a media that runs on a 24-hour cycle, which I think has been disastrous. In his first press conference as leader, Anthony Albanese said that he wanted to slow things down a bit, that he wasn't prepared to front up to media conferences and just make announcements on the run. He said that he wanted to be more considerate about what the Labor Party has to offer the community. So instead of turning up and fulfilling the 24-7 media cycle, he wants to be more considerate about policy development. Now, one interesting thing that has been brought up by the political commentators is that Bill Shorten is from the right faction of the Labor Party. He took the Labor Party to the left on many issues. Some would argue, well, he didn't go left enough. Anthony Albanese, he is from the left faction of the Labor Party, but he seems that he wants to take the party to the right. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but definitely there'll be more considerate approach to policy development. And we won't expect Anthony Albanese to turn up to a media conference and just do policy on the fly. I think that's the way to go, except... I'm wondering if you just get lost in the flotsam of jetsam of 24-hour news. It's going to be tough. I think that Anthony Albanese runs the risk of just being lost in the, the flow of events by doing this. He has to come up with some kind of pithy slogan that he can run with that gives hope, that alleviates fear. It's very hard to do. If the Labor Party turns up to the next election as a small target with virtually no policy agenda, well, the electorate will say, well, what's the point of change if you're not offering us anything different? It's a fine balancing act. They have to offer something, but not too much. And they'll probably have to look at what happened during the 1996 election campaign, where John Howard, he managed to win the election quite comprehensively as a small target. So will a small target work? I'm not so sure about that. You did mention that Labor seems to be the party that needs to provide inspiration to the electorate, and that's what it will have to do if it wants to to win government at the next election. But it's partially that old political adage that oppositions don't win elections, it's governments that lose elections. The opposition has to force the government into the position where they lose, and that's where Labor failed this time. And they didn't fail by much. It was only a 1% swing towards the government, which was probably 7% more than anyone was expecting. So, well done. Good job. Scott Morrison, he replicated John Howard in the 2004 election. In the 2019 election, he opened it up by saying, who do you trust on the economy? Mm. The coalition rhetoric on superior economic management, that's 
they've been running on that for such a long time and it's been evident ever since Labor vacated the economic space after the 1996 election. They just didn't want to talk about the economy anymore. It also is something that happened after the 2009 global financial crisis. Labor resolved that situation for Australia, more or less, but they stopped talking about it. It's like they're too afraid to talk about economic management from the Labor side, and that gives the coalition such a vacuum to fill, and they can fill it up with all their rhetoric about being superior economic managers, even though the evidence suggests that they're they're not. Both parties are, are roughly equal on that measure. But the big rhetoric on superior economic management is it's going to take a big test pretty soon because there's a possible recession just around the corner. Definitely a per capita recession is on the cards. Interest rates have gone down as well. They've gone down 25 percentage points. That's usually the sign of a sluggish economy. And that means that the budget surplus that they kept on going on about during the last election campaign is very unlikely to happen. They can't give the money away. The interest rates are at the lowest, I think they're half of what they were 10 years ago. The US had zero interest rates for a long time. I think they've crawled back up to 1% or 2%. And of course, low interest rates hurt self-funded retirees. Self-funded retirees seem to be within the natural habitat of the coalition as well. Exactly. And if you look at it from a broad philosophical view, the independent not reliant on government, entrepreneurial to an extent, individual, is your Liberal Party bread and butter. That's not a criticism at all. That, that's an observation. I think that would be agreed to by nearly everyone. So it seems like there will be a few economic issues just around the corner. Any government's agenda for an electoral cycle has to be management of the economy. But aside from that, the coalition had an incredibly small target during the last election campaign. There just doesn't seem to be much of an agenda for the next three years. Now, you can develop an agenda while you're going through the processes of government, but Christian Porter, he's the Attorney General, he suggested that religious freedom was the most important item on their agenda. And he said that it was an important factor that was brought up during the election campaign. I can't remember that being the case. According to Christian Porter, it's the top of their agenda. To me, it seems like it's it's quite an unimportant issue that's brought up whenever there's nothing else to talk about. And it's almost an extension of the culture wars and sort of merge into the religious and cultural wars that the coalition wants wants to implement. It comes straight from the American playbook. And it's this Americanism that comes out of the far-right libertarian, the Koch brothers, Murdoch, and other billionaires who don't want to pay tax, who don't want to run a business that is constrained, as they see it, by government regulation. And so in America, you frame it in terms of your freedom and your rights. Now, freedom is very dear to most Americans, or to all Americans, but very few of it can, can define it in a really consistent way. Is freedom having hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to the bank that you have to pay a little bit off each month, otherwise face severe penalties? Is that freedom? Is freedom not being able to get into opportunities that other people do get because of your social or cultural background or financial background? Is that freedom? And so religion's a big thing, freedom of religion, which America was formed upon by saying, right, the state has no religion. That is up to you. You can have whatever religion you want, provided you don't break any laws. 
most Americans have been very happy. But over the last 40 or 50 years, I think it, the moral majority starts to get prominence in the 60s, has been this notion of our religious freedoms are under threat, which is, of course, nonsense. And it's the same here. I don't think anybody really minds what religion you are. Now, there's a couple of notable exceptions amongst some parts of the community, which we, we won't get into. But certainly, they still open Parliament with the Lord's Prayer, ridiculously in a secular nation. Nobody is prevented from going to church on Sunday, and they shouldn't be, or is prevented from going to, to the synagogue. Nobody yet is prevented from going to, to the mosque. And I hope that remains the case. Those laws are already in place in Australia. The next electoral cycle, based on this debate about religious freedom, it's more or less going to be a smokescreen. It's what conservative parties all around the world typically do. Bring up this issue that takes up all the attention, such as religious freedom. It's been the culture wars that's been the smokescreen for for many years within conservative politics in Australia. This time it will be religious freedom to take up a lot of energy from the media. And in the background, workers' rights will be cut back. Union influence will be diminished. Wages will go down. There will be a whole range of economic issues that are worthy of attention, but they won't be because all of these other factors, such as religious freedom or an extension of the culture wars, will be there to create the smokescreen. Partly it was brought in to disguise the fact that he couldn't bring in his tax cuts and that he knew he couldn't bring them in because the writs came in on the 28th of June and uh, you can't get the legislation passed until after the financial year, which meant you can't bring in the tax cuts this year. The earliest they can come in is the next financial year. Um, Now, that's a minor promise in a way, but I think we're going to see a lot more of this. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.